Hello and welcome to the RCP Medicine Podcast with me, Dr. Amy Burbridge. I'm an acute physician working in Coventry. And I'm Dr. Hussein Bashir. I am a respiratory registrar working in the southeast. And the aim of this podcast is to demystify medicine, recap and clarify general medical topics, and maybe cover some interesting historical facts along the way. Prior to this recording, me and Hussein have not discussed this case, and I'm going to hand you over to Hussein for today's case. Thanks very much, Amy. So I thought uh, for this episode, I'd discuss something that's actually probably been on my mind for about two years, uh, and I thought I'd be quite opportuni- opportunistic and use this as a, a good time to reflect uh, on some uh, issues uh, and a medical condition that I think is quite common uh, for all of those um, people out there on uh, acute and general medicine. Um, So rather than just going straight into the topic, I'll just paint the picture of what happened. Uh, So it was about 7pm on a Friday. Um, I wasn't actually on call, um, but I was just walking through the acute medical unit, you know, I had to follow up on some referrals or something. Um, And uh, I overheard um, a rather distressed SHO uh, speaking to ITU over the phone uh, about a patient who had come in that day. Um, the general gist was that this is a known alcoholic liver disease patient. Um, from the sounds of it, had come in quite decompensated uh, and had been referred as an upper GI bleed. It then transpired that the patient was already on Optiflow. Um, and with my respiratory background, I was obviously a little bit perturbed by that. You know, why is a patient on Optiflow? And Optiflow, for those who don't know what it is. Yeah, so it's, it's kind of like high, high positive pressure. Um, you, you can give high flow oxygen through nasal cannulae. So, you know, 80% and above. Um, so it kind of works a little bit like CPAP. Um, or low-level BiPAP in that it gives you good inspiratory pressures, but it's also just enough pressure that can also give you a higher peep. Um, so it keeps your alveoli open even during expiration. So um, it's a nice way of giving people that high-pressure uh, delivery of oxygen without giving them a full face mask so they can still eat, they can still talk, they can still drink, um, etc. But um even so, if someone is needing Optiflow, it means that they're quite hypoxic. That standard oxygen doesn't doesn't work. So immediately, I kind of knew that something something was up. Um, so I got chatting to the SHO. You know what's going on here? Do you need any help? Um, and then it transpired that although this chap was referred as an upper GI bleed, he also had quite a significant amount of ascites. Um, you know, so I thought, is this splinting his diaphragm? Um, is this why he's possibly hypoxic? And then looking at his x-ray, he had a complete whiteout of his right lung. Um, so that's why he's in respiratory failure. Yeah. Um, and given the history, you know, knowing that he's definitely got some ascites, it's, it's more, most likely that on that right lung, it's going to be fluid, um, possibly related to his liver disease rather than a collapsed lung from a blockage. Mm-hmm. Um, and lo and behold, you know, we did a quick scan and it was all fluid. Um, so the thought process through my head was that, you know, we don't have any ITU beds. Uh, there's a pretty sick patient uh, Friday evening. Um, what's going to happen to him? Not just over the weekend, but overnight. Um, and this particular place was somewhere where as a respiratory team we frequently got called to put chest drains in um so it was also running through my mind that 
who's capable of putting a chest strain in either overnight or over the weekend. Um, so because I like procedures, I thought I'll help out and, you know, why don't we put a drain in yeah. so at least that over the weekend they know they've got that, that bit of management sorted. Um, so I know we will cover alcoholic liver disease in more depth in another episode um, but the standard things you know to look out HB was slightly low was that from his upper GI bleed mm-hmm. uh, platelets were also slightly on the low side uh, INR was slightly on the high side so about 1.5 1.6 um, so obviously there are particular measures you have to you have to make sure you you take before putting a drain in but the drain was quite uncomplicated it looked very transitive uh, i.e it was clear Um, and so it was a pretty easy diagnosis to say that this is likely to be related to his alcoholic liver disease uh, and ascites so i put the drain in with the sho um, we you know attached it to a bottle documented the notes uh, gave the staff a plan about you know this fluid's coming out pretty quickly you know a litre uh, 1.2 litres came up pretty quickly so we clamped it and just said after an hour um, you can unclamp it and then drain it further 1.2 litres uh, and either clamp it again or you know let a little bit more come out depending on how the, the patient's doing standard advice that I've been used to writing for every chest drain uh, and then eventually went home thankfully um, it then transpired that the uh, patient did have further GI bleeding so they did end up going uh, for an emergency scope uh, and did end up getting uh, that ITU bed Um, but following on from that uh, repeat x-ray had shown good resolution of the pleural effusion Mm -hmm. Um, but there's a suspicion about whether there's some increased opacification of the the affected right lung Um, and so a diagnosis of re-expansion pulmonary edema uh, was documented um, and then I found out when I came back to work uh, the next week that I'd had a Datix oh. put against me. Um, Good old Datex. Yeah, which yeah. is uh, the first time it's happened to me specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was to do with the drain uh, and what happened overnight. And what transpired was that uh, separate to the GI bleed, um, he drained about eight litres of fluid. Eight litres. Over how, how long? Uh, so over, over the night. And it, it just raised a really important point that although I had said, you know, you can, you can drain it overnight, I didn't expect his bottle to be, which are, you know, a litre in capacity to be changed eight times. <laughs> um, and the, the, the poor nursing staff were probably following my instructions to the letter. Absolutely. Uh, which is yeah. why that happened. Um, and whilst I do have my own doubts that, you know, his repeat x-ray didn't actually look like, you know, fulminant normal pulmonary edema. And obviously I, I'm not in a position to say what symptoms the patient had because he's already pretty sick from his GI bleed. Um, it did raise some important points and maybe look into, you know, what are the chances of re-expansion pulmonary edema um etc etc um but the main thing that stuck with me and the reason it stuck with me is because when you have a datix put against you it's it's it's, it's not a serious incident or or anything like that but it still makes you doubt yourself uh and especially because i 
technically didn't have to be involved at all with it um it did leave a little bit of a sour taste uh, with me for for quite a few weeks actually um i think that's just how i am as a person that i you know took it quite personally and was quite actually quite bitter about it you were bitter about the datics being put in because you yeah. stayed you weren't meant to be at work yeah you weren't even on the ward exactly and it's and, and you know it's all context and in, in hindsight obviously a, a datix had to be put in because there was something yeah. that was unusual overnight and, and it was the right thing to do yeah exactly and luckily with hindsight I've seen it agreed with it and learnt from it and it wasn't personal no exactly and it, and it wasn't personal yeah. um, and in terms of the learning points which, which I'll just run through because you know having put a lot of chest strains in for both pneumothorax pneumothoraces and pleural effusions um I've never actually seen re-expansion pulmonary edema properly. So it's actually a very rare occurrence. Um, and the literature um, that's out there, and we'll have references uh, on our website, um, but following drainage of infusion or pneumothorax, it's only about between 0 and 1% that re-expansion pulmonary edema occurs. So it's actually a very rare occurrence, but it's important to know about. Um, so yes it is uncommon it can happen following drainage of either fluid or air Um, the normal presentations are cough, discomfort, hypoxia um, or even some sudden shock Um, most people do cough Mm. if they've had uh, a significant effusion um, affecting the whole lung for more than 72 hours Um, that is pretty much a given that they will feel a little bit different and most of the time it settles down just by supportive measures so you know not getting them to run up and down um, and just you know calming the breathing sometimes you can give some supplemental oxygen and there's no real need for diuretics either it's something that usually is self-resolving so the so re-expansion pulmonary edema is picked up clinically and also on the chest x-ray but management is it's supportive, supportive. so yeah oxygen it's, requirements exactly it's so it's, it's one of these weird things where you know about it and you diagnose it but actually you don't really have to do anything uh, you know to, to actually change things obviously at the extreme end for those that are most sick and for example this gentleman had to go to intensico anyway um you could suggest things like non-invasive pressure or some cpap much in the way of someone with pulmonary edema following a heart attack um but that's very much at the extreme end and, and the literature suggests that most people only need supportive measures onset of symptoms is mostly immediate um, but sometimes it can linger up until 24 hours um, it's interesting you mentioned a chest x-ray so sometimes you only get that sort of pulmonary congestion on the affected lung not necessarily oh, that's interesting so it's not bilateral yeah not not yeah. necessarily bilateral but it obviously can have yeah. can have the same effects um, and there's lots of uh, theories about why people get um, re-expansion pulmonary edema so possible increased permeability of the pulmonary vasculature as a result of inflammation so if you've had a lung that's been squashed and it's suddenly expanding full of air and um, there's a thought that that can lead to an inflammatory response um, also uh, looking at blood flow so again with a squashed lung suddenly increasing that increases the pulmonary hydrostatic pressure quite quickly uh, has an effect on venous return etc etc so there's sort of physiological and uh, chemical um, theories out there um, which to be fair we don't really need to go into too much detail um, another thing that i learned 
interesting to this case though was um, it felt that because he was referred as a GI bleed, um, his effusion, which I'm sure was picked up because he had an X-ray, um, still wasn't really the main priority. And I, and I understand that, you know, if he needs a scope, he needs a scope, he needs to be nil by mouth. Um, but I just thought that with a gentleman with ascites and a right pleural effusion, mm. isn't that, you know, sort of, it's got to be connected until proven otherwise. Um, and I was actually inspired by a, a tweetorial uh, recently by a very prominent physician in America called Tony Brew, um, who very quickly went through why do people with alcoholic liver disease get predominantly right-sided effusions? Mm-hmm. Because you think with liver disease, you have low albumin, you may have increased sodium and fluid retention. So why isn't it bilateral? Yeah. Um, and he went through some some evidence and basically found that um, peritoneal, peritoneal fluid does cross the diaphragm um, and if you've got significant swelling of your abdomen um, that fluid is likely to herniate through the central tendon of the diaphragm and it just so happens that that central tendon is actually larger on the right hand side than the left so the fluid that you're getting below is more likely to track to the right side um, so I thought it was quite interesting to confirm that that there is evidence that right-sided pleural effusions yeah. are more common and people with alcoholic liver disease and it it will you know I know we've again discussed pleural effusions in another episode but um, you know the thoughts are malignancy infection or is it a, a transit that's going to be because of a failure um, but it's quite a nice diagnostic kind of indicator to have that okay if they've got alcoholic disease and they've got you know significant right effusion yeah. it's probably going to be related or they could have infection yeah so i mean obviously high alcohol intake they may be immunosuppressed um and therefore more at risk of infection so possibility it's always worth thinking about absolutely i think i think every different specialty has a different priority so i I know gastro would have said oh tap as a size has he got sbp Um, and you quite rightly said infection is a really important thing to look out for in decompensated liver disease because it it sometimes is infection that is actually the the precipitant um which again it was, was another thing you know that's why if someone does have if they're compromised by a pleural effusion, you've got to do something about it. So rather than leave it for the weekend or the Monday, that was, again, something that was running through my mind that, you know, something should be done now so at least we can... Could have been that. an empyema. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. Um, did you send the sample off? Uh, we did. Okay. Um, so we sent for all the usual all the usual things the infusion fluid okay um the the nice thing was that we you know putting it in a gas syringe you can have a pretty good idea of ph and depends where you work yeah i know when i've done that before i've been chastised (laughs) for putting fluid through a gas machine guidelines do suggest using um using those machines but yes i I do get that there are complications with if you if you can block uh things up but um yes we're pretty confident that yes this was transitative um this is related to alcoholic liver disease okay. at least leave the drain in and then we can think about things further ahead now one thing that you've said quite a few times throughout this conversation is that you weren't on call you were walking through the ward and you heard somebody in distress so you went to help and you weren't not less you weren't meant to be there you were meant to be at home or on your way home but you did the right thing you know, you helped somebody out who needed your help and you were the right person to put that chest drain in. Would you do the same thing again? Yes, I would. Um, so I 
um, one of these that's uh, is not used to the new junior doctor contract and exception reporting and all these kind of things. Yes. Um, I get why that's in place, but it's my mindset isn't fo- really too focused mm-hmm. on time. Uh, and I'm very, I'm very proud and aware, and I'm, I'm pretty sure most other registrars feel this way is that those registrar years are, are incredible because that's so formative yeah and it's it's when that's when you start to become i'm not saying expert because you're not there yet but it's you become you never get there you never, yeah. <laughs> but you you develop your skill set and, and i'm aware that actually as a registrar you have a skill set that not many other people have um, so even though there may be some very experienced consultants there, mm-hmm. um, they may not have been used to putting a chest in under ultrasound yeah. guidance. Mm-hmm. Similarly, the on-call team may not have had many opportunities to put chest drains in when they've previously been on call because they belong to other specialties with other priorities. So I, I would because I'm, I, I think, you know, the, the nice bit about hospitals and various professions is that you've got different people with different skill sets. Yeah but you've got to utilize them when they're needed the most. Um, so I probably would, uh, in fact, I definitely would do yeah. the same. And and, but do you know what? It's the right thing to do. There's not many people who would walk past an SHO who is in distress. Yeah. Um, because you just can't do it because they need, they need your help. And, you know, like you say, the registrar years are formative. So... I was a registrar for nearly 10 years. Uh, I prolonged it for many different reasons. Did rheumatology training, acute medicine training, did some education. And every single one of those years has made me the doctor that I am because it's so formative. So it is really important that, you know, you're right. People recognize the the skill set that you have as a registrar. And it's not just clinical skills. Yeah, absolutely. It's leadership skills management education so it's yeah a wide variety um, of skills again with hindsight i'm glad it happened because it it also shed some light on how difficult the night team what what difficulty the night team have in following written instruction so documentation yeah there's this poor nurse who was following the exact instructions of me there was a night registrar who you know was being asked you know should i follow this and you know they've already got you know 10 people waiting to clerk so it's 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 a difficult environment but um i'll end on a a slightly happy note okay uh bizarrely twist of fate so uh, i got a referral uh from the gastro ward about a month later um about a chat with the right pleural effusion yeah. that they weren't sure about does it need drainage does it need tapping etc uh so i went to see them and lo and behold it was the same patient seriously <laughs> uh he had a pleural effusion that had reaccumulated um and I, I i can't remember my exact response but it, it seemed that his liver disease was obviously the main problem and um unfortunately things like tap pruridesis and indwelling drains aren't really appropriate in this setting um and until the liver disease is under control this is just something that we have to to keep an eye on but um i think that's probably where my bitterness from the datic subsided because it was actually nice to see a patient who wasn't intubated uh wasn't really having a requirement for oxygen sitting up um obviously he had no idea who i was but um at least he was slightly on the mend it was yeah and regarding the datics um 
DATEX or clinical incident form or safety form, whatever it's called in your hospital, um, they are done for very good reason. They're done to highlight inconsistencies in medical care, to prevent medical errors, to reflect, to learn. But when I've had one put in on me, I also felt absolutely rubbish. Yeah. And like I was the worst doctor in the world. So it's... Yeah. And I think it's it's definitely a shot when it's the first one you have. Yeah, it's really um, hard. But as you've said, the, the key thing is don't take it personally. Um, and what I've learned is that the learning from it you know reading about you know the the evidence that's out there the management about it coming on a podcast to talk about it there's there's so much better things that can come from uh, what is what isn't a black dot okay thank you very much and we'll be back with you very very soon take care